1: Just after one minute past nine, you are tuned to 102.73RRR. You may be listening via rrr.org.au. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. I'm Dr. Surf. How are you, Dr. Surf? I'm good. Good, nice to have you here. It's a lovely, lovely day. It is. There was hardly anyone on the road this morning. Because <laughs> everyone thinks it's still eight o'clock or
0: oh, good luck to them. six
1: when you been, been leaving, maybe. My
0: Weird middle-aged brain's been on daylight savings for about a month. Right. And apart from the fact that I've been getting up early to go for a surf. So it's no big deal for me. Yeah, right. I've been going to bed at (laughs) 9 (laughs) o'clock. There's nothing else to do. (laughs) Anyway.
1: Hey, uh, Tim, thank you very much for Vital Bits. He got up at the equivalent of um, 4 a.m. from... 24 hours ago. But you can't think of it in that long. No, you can't. It's best to just switch in as quickly as you can. it's like jet lag. Yeah, just jump straight into the deep end Mm. as we're going to do. So thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you, Andrew, very much for Soulful Bits with his two helpers today. Mm. Big program today. We're going to shortly cross. Actually, I don't know where we're crossing to, but we're going to be speaking with Anate Tong, who's the former president of Kiribati. Kiribati is actually spelled Kiribati. It's B-A-I. B-A-T-I on the end, but you pronounce it Kiribati. It's uh, a nation in Micronesia and it's on the brink of disappearing. You might have heard or seen about the plight of uh, of Kiribati from continually rising sea levels. So Anate Tong, he was uh, president of Kiribati for three terms. He's now out of official office but fronting an international campaign to uh, highlight um, this incredible... Uh, um, catastrophe really facing Kiribati from rising sea levels. All of this has been captured in a film called Anate's Ark. It's screening at the Environmental Film Festival Australia in just over a week's time and we're going to be um, speaking with him on the phone about this film but uh, particularly about his role over the last, particularly over the last 10 or so years. Mm -hmm. Very exciting.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Dr. Surf, you're going to have a surf report for us and you've got some news.
0: I've got News. Do you want me to talk about news now? Nope. Okay. Yeah, I've got news <laughs> and a surf report. And we're going to be talking, I've got a special guest, Budgie's come back in, Greg Budgeon. And Great. he's going to be talking with me about fins and how important they are on boards. Does
1: that make you the Budgie smuggler? Pass. Given that you've brought him in,
0: <laughs> you can hit her.
1: <laughs> so I couldn't help myself.
0: We'll both hit her. <laughs> No, it doesn't. But uh, fins, uh, five years ago, if you'd asked me about fins, I would have just gone in. But they do make a huge difference to your board. Right. So we're going to be talking about the different fins you can buy for short boards and knee boards. Greg is a champion knee boarder, and as everyone knows, knee boarders are my best friends now. And... (laughs) Um, Didn't you insult boards.
1: them last time Greg was in? And-
0: no, before Greg came in, I <laughs> inadvertently did and I got some threatening texts from, from some ageing kneeboarders <laughs> down in the Point Leo region and they had me worried for a, a little while until I worked out that it was Pete Wilco sending them. <laughs> He's a very nice
1: man. Okay. He
0: was just putting it up me.
1: It's hardcore kneeboarding. Mm. I've seen the footage. I'm too scared to try it myself. Yeah. Ergo, it's hardcore. It is. Mm. Uh, In between um, speaking with Annotate Tong and having um, Greg talk to us about um, fins and kneeboarding, we're going to be speaking with Nicole Mertens from Victorian National Parks Association about Sea Slug Census 2, the sequel. So Cade Mills, who's a regular... Uh, uh, part of our program. Um, Kate's overseas at the moment. Nicole is stepping in for Kate and talking to us about uh, the second instalment of Sea Slug Census. So this is a great citizen science program where divers and snorkelers around Port Phillip Bay and Western Port take part in capturing images of nudibanks, really, that they see while they're out there in the water and sending them all in as a group. And they can then be categorised and Mm. have a proper record of what is where and when. There you go. That's our program. We've got a giveaway as well. And lots and lots of stuff going on. It's a very busy show. So we hope you'll join us for the next hour. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, Do you want the weather? Yes, please. It's nice. That was quick.
0: 24 um, light northerly winds with afternoon bayside sea breezes. that will probably come in a little bit earlier. The surf's good. You want to go down. Uh, If you're experienced, I would head to the Mornington Peninsula beach breaks or... um, Gonna are not gonna matter. Woolamai mm-hmm. around that area, or you could go to Thirteenth Beach. Uh, I'd get in early because the breeze is going to come in. If you're not experienced, try somewhere like Flinders. Um, Torquay'd have a choppy choppyish wave. Mm-hmm. Surf's been okay the last couple of weeks. It wasn't the two weeks leading up to um, school holidays were just ridiculous. So the first week of school holidays was terrible. Last week was alright. Mm. I got some good waves during the grand final. <laughs> I knew you would be just in the grand final. <laughs> it wasn't, look, it was on shore, but it's always fun to surf when everyone else is glued to the television.
1: Although this year, I don't know if that was the case. Not uh, everyone else was, I was actually, well, I watched it. When it I drove amazing. back,
0: it was like, the traffic was like 2 o'clock in the morning. There was yeah. no one on the road. So I was just assumed everyone was glued to the
1: box. Good day to get out and about and do things. Mm,
0: and the weather's going to be really good until Tuesday and then it's going to rain.
1: Yeah. So twenty four today, twenty six tomorrow, and then showers Tuesday nineteen, Wednesday seventeen, partly cloudy, Thursday nineteen, mostly sunny. Friday twenty one mostly sunny. So yeah, Wednesday Tuesday looks like being the wet day and Wednesday maybe a little bit to follow. And the tide times if you're heading out on the waters today?
0: Ten thirty. You, you need to know. High tide at ten thirty. Daylight saving time.
1: And low tide at 347.
0: Again, if you're going for a surf, go now.
1: And uh, for our, um, our our divers, slack water somewhere in between. We've got about a minute. Have you got some surfing news?
0: I have. Um, do you want me to pump?
1: Well, I think we might save. I know what you're going to We've got a couple of um, plugs to do. I think we might do that in a little bit. But I wanted to ask you about the surf report, okay. the, the report that's come out.
0: Uh, those of you who log into SwoleNet would have seen a report that came out a week or two ago from the Surf Life Saving Australia about, it's called the Coastal Safety Brief, and it's basically a wrap-up of um, fatalities in the water over the past few years. Uh, just for interest's sake, I'll just quickly go through it. Um, since 2003, six surfers have been attacked, resulting in death from by sharks, but... 53 surfers have drowned, so drowning obviously is is a much bigger risk. Mm. 54% of surfers reported surfing occasionally under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. Right. And 19% of drownings in total, not just at the beach, have been attributed to alcohol and drugs. So there's a risk there that we should be aware of. As far as age goes, the risk decreases between the ages of 40 and 54 but over 54 heart attacks become a major factor in drowning amongst surfers and that's because the work rate when you're surfing, in other words your exercise level, cannot always be controlled. In other words you'll be paddling out and feeling a little bit puffed and then a big set comes in you've got to go and
1: you have a big burst of
0: yeah. mm. and also cold can increase the risk of heart attack add to that 67% 67% of surfers report surfing in conditions beyond their skill level at least occasionally. Right. So that you add all those things together. And I thought I'd mention this now because this is the time of year when um, we see quite a lot of what I'd call recreational surfers coming back into the water. They haven't surfed over the colder months. They're not fit. We can out-paddle them like crazy. Mm. But they're, they're, it's risky for them. Mm. So I'm just sending the message out there. If you haven't surfed during the winter months and you're starting again just take it easy even i'm taking it easy according to the surf life saving this is the thing that got the biggest laugh from my mates according to the surf life saving australia a frequent surfer is a surfer who surfs one or more times a month and that is ridiculous isn't
1: that, that interesting given that i surf
0: 18 to 20 times a month and i know guys that surf Phil Trigger says two or three times a day.
1: Isn't that interesting? You could not apply that to any other form of exercise, could you? That that not you would really, be regarded no. as being a frequent—I don't know—any name it swimmer, runner. If you did it more than once a month. No,
0: <laughs> you couldn't. In, <laughs> It'd be the in polar fact, opposite. In fact, I would say that's ludicrous. Yeah. To to say it's frequent, but anyway, um, I guess the message I'm trying to get across is. is Take it easy. When you're paddling out, you you can actually do it and relax at the same time. See, when you get back out into the lineup, you won't be puffed. Try doing that. That's yeah. my tip for the day. Right, just cruise.
1: It's 10 past nine, nearly 11 past nine, and uh, you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. If you've just tuned in, Daylight Savings has kicked off, so sorry if you were hoping to tune in and catch the last hour of Vital Bits. You can do that, of course, via radio on demand, but we are now in the throes of Radio Marinara. Uh, we are going to listen to a track. Um, Dr. Surf, we were going to listen to some The The, who I saw during the week, but you've brought in a crappy burnt disc, so we can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> so what are we going to hear instead? <laughs> we're
0: going to listen to uh, Teenage Fan Club who are coming out in February, and they're playing The Corner, I believe. There's a little bit of a story about this track, um, For and, and I swear it was completely random. This track was on my car stereo as I left work for the last time. So just think about... This sad middle aged man with a huge grin on his face and his hand out the window with the middle finger extended <laughs> all the way through the car park.
2: Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en 3 Triple R.
1: And 3 R indeed. It is 16 minutes past nine and you are listening to Radio Maranara here at 3 triple R. Anate Tong is the former president of Kiribati. It's a nation in Micronesia at serious risk of disappearing from continually rising sea levels. Now an acclaimed environmental campaigner, today Anate Tong fronts an international campaign to highlight the dire impact of rising sea levels on Kiribati, which ci- scientists believe will be underwater within the next 50 years. Anate's Arc is a powerful new documentary directed by Mathieu Reitz. It highlights the crisis faced by Kiribati and its neighbouring island nations. Anate Ark, Anate's Ark will screen at the upcoming Environmental Film Festival Australia here in Melbourne on the 15th of October. We're now honoured to speak with Anate Tong about his extraordinary film, the dire predictions of the impact of climate change on Kiribati and his monumental campaign efforts to drive meaningful change in action around the world. Anate Tong, good morning. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Mar- uh
3: Good morning and uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to uh, speak uh, and uh, hopefully convey a message.
1: Oh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we are truly honoured, as I mentioned. I thought we might ask with some context, um, Kiribati, it covers a huge area uh, across the Pacific Ocean. Can you, for our listeners, describe Kiribati and how big an area does it actually cover? How many people live there? How large is your nation?
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, Kiribati is, as you say, is a uh right back in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and it's um it's the only country that straddles the uh, the equator both the equator and the international date line uh it comprises some 33 uh, low-lying atolls uh, spread over 3.5 million square kilometers of ocean now the total land area is about uh, 800 square kilometers now that uh, so we're practically a, a nation of water the what, uh, what makes climate change particularly uh, relevant is the, the low-lying nature of the islands, barely two meters above sea level on average. And so what is being debated, discussed uh, by, by the scientists on, on the impacts of climate change, do have very dire consequences for us.
1: It, as you mentioned, it's an absolutely huge area that we're talking about and a very large number of people um, potentially impacted. Um, can you tell us about the people of Kiribati and your culture, uh, how long your communities have lived there? What what do they do in their daily lives?
3: Okay, well, we we, we think we date back a few thousand years and uh, we've, the total population at this time will be about uh, around 120,000 people, again, scattered over these uh, many islands which... Uh, are scattered all, all through uh, throughout the middle of the Pacific Ocean and now what do we do we're pretty much a subsistence level uh, we have a subsistence level economy uh, this is our lifestyle it's um, it, um, it, it remains pretty much a traditional society we continue to um, uh, to exercise, live the way we used to in many ways we are impacted by what is happening around us our globalization is of course by by its very uh, definition is the global uh, impact. And so, that is changing the life, but uh, I think, beneath it all, the sense of value that we've always had continues to remain, and the, this is, um, you know, we 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 continue to be, to live in communities and villages, and uh, there, there are rules within those uh, communities which continue to exist until today, sometimes in conflict with the, uh, the modern uh, constitutional and legal uh, instruments that are now, part of our daily life. And so, that is something that uh, it, it, it makes our culture very unique and it makes it so important that we try to preserve it.
1: Yes, and I asked that question because I, I saw Anate's ask arc last night and really wanted to um to get your perspective on that it really comes out in the film it's an extraordinarily beautiful it's often a frightening film which I think is really the point and it really reaches to the heart of the matter how um the people of Kiribati are already being affected in their daily lives from the impact of climate change uh and and your words as this comes out in the film your people are on the front line of climate change these impacts aren't a theoretical model of the future they're happening right now aren't they uh
3: that, that's true and um the film is about the message that I've been trying to communicate, the, um, the advocacy work that I've been doing at the international arena, trying to communicate that uh, climate change is not just a theory, it's, it's actually something that we are feeling. Uh, I am quite, quite often asked by people, you know, so do you, do you see the sea level rise? And of course we don't. But what we do see is the, uh, the, the, the impacts of what's happening to the, the different communities. Uh, we have communities who have had to leave the village because the, the land is no longer there. It's been taken up by the sea. And, and also a lot of other communities are facing hardships now because of the, the seawater uh, contaminating the freshwater lens, which is the source of drinking and portable water. Now, th- that is the one side of the story uh, about communicating the message. The other side of the story, uh, which runs in parallel, was the, what uh, what people are actually trying to do or actually doing in response to that, and so you had the story of the young, the young lady who, who relocated to New Zealand, now living in New Zealand and with her family, and so that, it's, in that sense, the, the story speaks very much for itself. And I think uh, I've seen it myself a number of times, and I think it's a very, uh, it encapsulates in in, the, in very powerfully the kind of message that I've been trying uh, to communicate over the, the decade and a half.
1: That's right. It really does um, cut to the chase. It gets to the matter of how people are being impacted and there are some really... um there are scenes with um some people sandbagging and trying to build um trying to build sea walls but then it you only it only takes one big storm and and uh and a lot of that water then comes over and people's houses are being flooded so it's that personal impact of climate change the other thing that i think the film does really beautifully is sort of touches to the politics of climate change at a global level and i wanted to ask you about the lack of action and the sense of urgency by so many governments including our own here in australia and we're very conscious of that uh how, how much much of that is because the problem is just regarded as theoretical and not taken seriously?
3: You know, I, I think there's a, there's a great degree of denial by people because they they don't believe that it matters to them, that it's not relevant to them at this point in time. And it would, they may be correct because we, we've got to view climate change with a sense of vision into the future. And I think uh, a great number of people lack this, uh, the vision into the future. And uh, I think the most guilty of those are our own political leaders because um, quite. I always make the statement that uh, uh, political leaders don't always uh, think about the what. Uh, the all they think about is the next four years, the next election, and they no, they do not think about the next generation. And I think that is the sad part. And uh, I've seen changes in the time that I've been involved in what happened in the United States with President Obama, and then there was the sudden change with the new administration. Uh, over time, New Zealand has been changing governments. Australia is now in the stage where it's struggling with its own uh, uh, position regarding the Paris agreement. So that is very unfortunate because we continue to view climate change through a political lens. And that is a huge, huge mistake because climate change will continue to happen whatever government is in power at any one time. And I think what is very important is uh, not so much the government in power, but what the government in power does to mitigate or to exacerbate the problem. And I, I think the serious challenge uh, that I've always posed is the climate change, I believe, is the greatest moral challenge for, for humanity. Because uh, you've got to understand that you people in Australia, whatever you do, will have impact for us here and now part of the world. And the question is, knowing what we know today from the science, what are we going to do about it? What is Australia, the Australian people, forget the politicians, what do the Australian uh, citizens What to do about it?
1: Yes, and that, um, that's a message that uh, really comes through strongly in the film as well. And I'll talk briefly about the Environmental Film Festival Australia shortly because uh, you're actually going to be coming out for uh, for a forum with that and, and I gather a question and answer session um, at the end of the screening of the film. Um, just before we move on to that, I just wanted to ask about your time as president of Kiribati. So you're in that position for three terms and while it's, it's difficult to talk about the lack of action, I just I want to ask you about the, from your perspective, when you were speaking with other world leaders of the UN and talking about what was happening to your nation, what kind of response did you get from them at a personal level? Did you get a personal right. response from them?
3: Yes, I did, and uh, I think the, 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 the response that I started initially when I started talking about it in the, the mid, uh, early 2000, 2004 and onwards was nothing. Nobody listened. Nobody really cared what what uh, about climate change. The focus was uh, on uh, um, uh, terrorism, okay, so uh, nobody cared, uh, really cared, but later on, the momentum started picking up and I but I kept plugging away hoping and uh, hoping that at some point in time uh, other leaders would listen and uh, of course we, we all remember what happened in Copenhagen the, the dismal failure that that was and uh, but I think in, in a way, what happened in Copenhagen woke people up to the fact that we are neglecting something which is absolutely vital for the, the future of the planet, and I think since then things started changing. I remember I met some leaders who, who, whose who representative uh, spoke with a different tone in Copenhagen, but uh, the leaders came back, and I think they realized that this is a global issue, and it has implications for relations with other countries, and so there was an, an, uh, a gradual change until. Now in 2012, and of course in 2015, we had that uh, historic agreement, which agreement it may not be as solid as we thought it was in 2015. So there continues to be that politics. Mm. But I think what is so gratifying is there is a, 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 a buildup in momentum. People are talking about it, other leaders are finding it. I, I, I used to be a lone voice. Now that is no longer the case, and I, I enjoy sitting back and listening to other leaders to the ball and run with
1: it. <laughs> and you're going to have a, a very captive audience when you come here to Melbourne in uh, in a week's time. Um, the film, we're speaking with Anate Tong about Anate's arc and it screened at Sundance Film Festival early this year. How was it received there?
3: I, I think I've been to several of the screenings in um, at Sundance in in, uh, in Canada, in Europe. And uh, I must say that the 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 response has been overwhelming. Uh, I've had people come up to speak to me after the screening, after the questions and answers, and say, "No, I didn't. I never knew this was the case. Now that I know, I, I will do everything that I can about it." So, getting the message across is, is absolutely vital, and uh, hopefully, the film will do that, and hopefully, people uh, will come and see it to just to to see what, uh, what the story what the story is all about. And hopefully it will change their mind if that is, uh, uh, if, if they really haven't given a lot of thought to it.
1: Do you know if um, people in Kiribati have been able to see the finished film and what was their reaction when they did?
3: Uh, yeah, well, that's a, that's a totally different story. It's not been screened here yet because it's still being um, uh, uh, translated, but it, uh, the screening that's um, already been done is to a very small uh, pockets of communities. But I think for them it's not new; it's part of their daily life, and this is what they do. This is what they, they live with. And of course, um, again, it's about uh, being able to see into the future. Uh, uh, our people typically do not look uh, at the next 20 years. Okay, and so life is wonderful. But uh, as leaders, we've got to, to 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 see things from a different perspective. We've got to have the, the sight to look into 20, 30, 50 years time, not at our own interest, because. A lot of people say it doesn't really affect, this, and that, that is true. Maybe not in their lifetime, but I think it's not about uh, our generation. It's about our children, our grandchildren. I have a lot of grandchildren, and I do need to, to do something about this. As I'm sure all other grandparents need to do.
1: One last question um, from a, a former leader to a current leader. And I'm going to say the word Scott Morrison because I know that media monitors in Canberra will pick this up if I say Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Australia. What would be your message to him?
3: Well, I, I think it's um, politics is absolutely vital, but uh, we were not born politicians and we will not die politicians. I hope not. But we, we, we are human beings when we are born and we will continue to be that. So let us let us... First of all and foremost, give consideration to the moral, our moral values as human beings, not our political, uh, what is it politically expedient. I think being a human, um, uh, doing the right thing, not just not necessarily for yourself, but for others. I think is the highest calling.
1: Anata's Ark is the name of the film we're speaking about. We are speaking with Anata Tong uh, about uh, his role as former. Uh, um, uh, president of Kiribati. The film Anate's Ark is screening as part of the Environmental Film Festival Australia on Monday 15th of October so just over a week's time 6.15pm till 8.30pm at ACME in Federation Square and there will be a question and answer session uh, after the screening and we will put a link to uh, the screening of this film on our own Facebook page and on our Triple R website as well. Anate Tong, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning uh, it's been absolutely wonderful and and um, all the very best, and hope you have a great time when you come to Melbourne.
3: Uh, thank you, and I, I thank you for giving me this opportunity. I look forward to speaking in, in Australia. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Bye for now. Okay, bye. Anna Taitong, there.
4: Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune into Radio Marinara on 102.73. Three Triple You know where it is.
0: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. I think he laughed because he saw me with my shirt off or something. <laughs> <laughs> Tim's a water man.
1: We love Tim. He's we, a good surfer. A, yeah. I, I haven't seen him surf, but I've seen i I've seen footage. Mm. I'll take your word for it. We've got a few... Uh, we've got a couple of things to plug. Do you want to go first, Dr. Surf?
0: Yeah, I will. I'm going to plug a fundraiser for the Disabled Surfers Association Mornington Peninsula Branch. Um, it's the second DSAMP Champs competition. It's a surf competition which is unlike any other surf competition you've been in. It's a four-man team competition where competitors get to ride their own surfboards but they must dress up in costumes and do stupid things on surfboards. Um, it's on on November the 10th which is the Saturday after Cup Day. It'll be on at Atlas, which is at Pines Beach Shoreham, starting at about 10 or 11. Uh, A four-man team, the charge is $200. We've got some wonderful prizes.
1: When you say four-man, I'm assuming women can do it too.
0: Four-surfer team. That's what I should have said. My apologies. We've got uh, prizes from Bass... Trigger Brothers, Peninsula Speech Pathology Services. We've got lots of wine, lots of beer as
1: prizes. They're Triple R subscribers too, I believe. Peninsula Speech Pathology Services. Uh,
0: And the prize for the best ride is a Mick Pierce semi-gun.
1: What defines the best ride?
0: Well, that's up to. This is being put on by Malediction Longboarders, Mm -hmm. of whom I'm a member, and the judging is all done by their professionally trained judging team. Um, I don't know. (laughs) I I keep well out of the judging so that I'm not accused of bias. But we had it last year on April Fool's Day and it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in in coming down and, and I should say that all winners are drawn out of a hat. So it's got nothing to do with how, how proficient you are at surfing. It's about putting on a costume, paddling out and just being an idiot and giving everybody a bit of a, a laugh and raising money for a good cause.
1: What kind of um, costumes have appeared in the past?
0: Um, we had uh, Batman, Robin, the Joker, the superheroes. We had the multinational team from Malediction last time where there was a French... Uh, the president, Tina, is French, and Tommy is Italian, and so they all dressed up in national costume. Uh, we had surf punks from Trigger Brothers. Uh, we had the hippies. Even their dog was dressed up. So all sorts of things.
1: Fantastic.
0: It's basically you want to wear a costume where when you paddle out you're not going to drown. So yeah. don't don't wear a great big heavy onesie. Thing.
1: Ones, onesies are probably not a good idea. But even
0: if you just want to wear a silly hat, yeah. you don't, it's it's just a way of, of lightening the, lo, the the mood, really. It's not a serious surf competition by any stretch. Yeah, but there's cool. some good prizes.
1: Now, registration, is there? If you
0: want to register, email me on firstreef60 so at gmail.com. So that's firstreef 6 six zero at gmail.com and you would, uh, I'd like to get all registrations in by the 3rd of November. Okay.
1: So one week beforehand. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm going to take that flyer from you, and I'm going to keep plugging it over the next few weeks. Thank you, Brom. I have something to plug too. This is uh, opening night is this coming Friday, 12th of October. It's the last line of defence, an art exhibition curated by artist Samantha Lurada in collaboration with Sea Shepherd. It's at Besser Space, which is 15 to 25 Kiel Street, Collingwood, and it is a uh, it's drawing attention. It's raising money um, for Sea Shepherd to protect the Great Barrier Reef and Australian marine parks so it looks like a a really wonderful uh selection of uh of artwork there's also an auction which is going to be open australia-wide launching online um 7 p.m on friday 12th uh but it goes until the 27th of october so you've got a few weeks to to be part of this uh so uh i will put a link to this on our facebook page as well i've got a few uh, facebook links i need to catch up on so i will be doing that this afternoon uh, all right, it's 9.36. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. We can listen to some music in a sec and then get Nicole Mertens in from the VNPA. While we do that, we have a giveaway, and this is next Sunday, fourteenth of October. Very exciting radiotherapy. If you've ever wanted to kind of see what uh, our crazy wacky doctors—no, they're not crazy and wacky; they're wonderful people—what um, they actually look like, um, they are going to be doing a live to air from right here at Triple R in the performance space. Doors open at nine thirty. While we'll be going to air and uh, starts at 10 a.m. sharp. So to coincide with Mental Health Month this October, our radiotherapy program will be broadcasting live, hosted by Dr. Doolittle, Malpractice, Dr. Autonomy and Panel Beater, going to be joined by two very special guests, Jill Stark, award-winning journalist and best-selling author of High Sobriety and Happy Never After, and Nellie Thomas, former comedian, author and MC, her passion being physical, social, emotional and community health and wellbeing. If you want to get along to that, you need to re- register and to do that, you need to give us a call, you can do that right now, 93881027, you need to be a R subscriber. Ken is in the green room, he will take your calls and uh, we hope to see you here next Sunday for a live-to-air for radiotherapy. All right, 937 and Dr Surf. what are we going to listen to now? Um,
0: we're going to listen to a little bit of Massive Attack and did you know, Bron, that one of the members of Massive Attack is Banksy? No. Well, that's what I heard on the internet. No, seriously. (laughs) He looks like (laughs) Banksy.
1: I just fell right into that. And and what are we we listening to? We
0: listened to a single they they did with um, Hope Sandoval. Right. Called The
3: Spoils. Hello, my name is Belvedere and I have something to say to you while I'm here. With Radio Marinara, you'll all go much farer.
4: So tune in. I'm being sincere.
1: It's a blast from the past, Dr. Surf. Belved so in. much
0: so I don't...
2: Oh!
3: He was a from manager.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm in awe now. <laughs> it was so great. I'm actually... Yeah, that's... Okay, I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fantastic card.
1: Who are we listening to just then?
0: That was Massive Attack, yes. a.k.a. Banksy. <laughs> with uh, with ha- Hope Sandoval nice. from um, Mazzy Star. Beautiful track and hopefully our listeners have not all gone to sleep.
1: As they, you know, their, their bodies might be telling them to do, mm. it's quarter to ten or 9.44 you're listening to Radio Marinara And 8.44 because this is the beginning of daylight saving if you've just sort of woken up and put on your radio now back in april we brought you news of victoria's entry into national citizen science project sea slug census where divers and snorkelers around port phillip and western port bays create a photographic bank of information about fabulously flamboyant nudibranchs that inhabit our local coastal waters well it's time for round two sea slug census two kicks off this friday the 12th of october once again divers and families are invited to get involved gathering information about our glorious banks. Nicole Mertens is coordinating the sequel to Sea Slug Census for the Victorian National Parks Association. She joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, Nicole.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, Thanks so much for coming in. Dr. surf you had a question to kick off with. Yeah, what's a sea slug? <laughs> are they
2: big? Uh, they can be. So sea slugs are... Um pretty pretty diverse group of marine gastropod mollusks. So that includes things like the sea hares, uh, sap-sucking sea slugs, and the nudibranchs.
0: And if I'm a public scientist, can I find them without don- donning scuba, deer, scuba gear? In other words, if it's low tide, can I go and find some?
2: Yeah, you can. So that's probably one of the great things about this project is that um, anyone can really get out and do it. You can find them in rock pools if you're looking hard enough. Hmm, very good. Um,
1: for our listeners who maybe missed the Slug Census one, can you give us an overview of that? What actually happened?
2: Yeah, so uh, in April um, we had about 150 people across 40 teams go out over the weekend and, and send in photos of what they found. Um, we identified 53 species of nudibranch, including one possible new species. Ooh. Wow.
0: Mm. Uh, Are there any hot spots? Nudibranch hot spots?
2: So I think the good thing about uh, the nudibranchs is it seem to be able to find them all along the coast here. So we had people out in Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. A um, lot of the usual sites, a so lot of the hotspot dive sites, things like Burgowrie, Kerford Road, Ricketts Point. Um, yeah. Hmm.
1: Do you know what's happened with, um, so this potential new species, has that been confirmed?
2: I don't think it's been 100% confirmed, but um, yeah, we're in the process of verifying that.
1: The molluscan taxonomists are very excited. Do you get, get very
2: I wouldn't get to name it, no. I think <laughs> I'll leave that up to the experts. I think the taxonomists get naming rights, don't they? <laughs> yeah. When they
1: discover new species. Three triple R's. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> Radio Marinarii. Can we make a suggestion? Have <laughs>
2: <Yeah.
1: laughs> <laughs> it named after what we do. Not that we're, you know, being egotistical at all. <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, and apart from the new species, any other surprises that came out from Sea Slug Census 1? Um, I,
2: well, I think we got a pretty good range of the species so I think there's about 400 species of nudibranchs and other sea slugs in Victoria and so we found about an eighth of the possible known species um there's quite a few interesting ones if you check out our report um we've actually got photos of, of kind of the the best ones. So, what would you call a best
1: one? Like, what's what uh, can, what what is used for? In your mind, what's the best kind of nudie Uh
2: it's it's got to be something that's really colourful. Obviously, that's what draws a lot of people in, um, and we we tend to think so. We call all of the sea slugs, nudibranchs often, but it, nudibranchs are actually just a subset of the sea slugs, mm. but I guess they're the ones that come to mind because they're the really bright, colourful ones. They've got the big gills that are exposed, so they kind of have these weird, colourful, frilly hats. And Yeah, they're very, but they're quite cool.
0: small, aren't they, those ones? About the uh, size of a 20-cent piece? Yeah, so one? Always, a lot of
2: them can yeah. be only a couple of centimetres. Um, you can get some um, up to 20, 30, I think the largest sea slug... Ever recorded was just under a meter. Cool. So if you find one of those out there, please send a photo in. That'd be really cool.
0: Do they taste nice? Oh. <laughs> well,
2: uh, no. no, that's, that's part the of it. The
0: reason I ask yeah. is that I've seen poachers down on uh, our reefs collecting them.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, oh, for aquaria?
2: Possibly for aquaria, okay. yeah. So they, because um, one of the cool things about the sea slugs is that they can actually, uh, I guess, assimilate the food that they eat so a lot of the defense mechanisms within the food things like hard structures in sponges um, stinging cells from like hydroids like anemones um, and the sap sucking sea, sea slugs actually suck the chloroplasts the photosynthetic cells out of the algae that they eat so they can be solar powered uh, none of these things I think actually make them good eating um, and we don't really know what Eats them. That's the thing, we don't know a lot about them at all, which is why this project's really cool.
0: Yeah. Ah, so I was wondering why they were collecting them. Do they do it for aquaria?
2: Yeah, I guess they would be quite a quite a prized possession okay. in aquaria. Mm. And they do tend to stand out,
1: particularly in, in waters where, say, maybe the algal cover is quite on the dull side and suddenly you get this incredibly bright nudibranch or, or sea slug. I should say I've got to stop
2: calling <laughs> thank you Nicole it, it, it's a pretty common town I think it's, it's you know it's pretty interchangeable yeah. at this point but the, uh, the the experts might get a bit cross it <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: yeah no I don't want to upset the <laughs> experts but they really do stand out don't they a lot of the time yeah yeah um okay so what are you looking for for sea slug sensors Too any particular spots that you are keen to cover that maybe didn't get covered last time
2: no, we, we just want... If people are out and about um, at their favourite spot or if they're, they're going to go down to the coast for the day, we just want them to send in photos if they find them. So um, I guess the first time round, we were looking at really a, a baseline of what's out there. Um, this is a project that we're hoping to continue for many years because it's really the ongoing results that we're looking at and we're looking at things like changes in species distribution and abundance and locations. And the dive
1: clubs and shops and so on they're all on board aren't they because everyone loves sea slugs it's that seem to I don't I haven't come across a single person yet who doesn't have this immediate kind of ah response when they they see an image of a sea slug.
2: For sure yeah so it's um I mean they're kind of the poster child for for (laughs) a citizen science project because yeah everyone loves them um they're they're fantastic to look at. They're pretty mysterious. We, we just don't know much about their ecology and biology. Um, and, yeah, they're pretty easy to get out there and find.
1: It's always such a treat when you come across them. Uh, so what sort of information do you need to have when people send in an image to you? And we'll get we'll mention the details of where they send it in a minute. But
2: Yeah, yeah so um, what we were looking for is obviously the, the name of the person who's taken the photo, uh, the location. Um, this time around we, we probably want a date. Um And if you know the species that you're looking at, you think you know it, um, for sure include that as well. Great. You had some
1: uh, pretty spectacular merch for sale back in April. Are the t shirts and the stickers still available?
2: There are still some t shirts. Um, We're we're just going to sort out on that one. Um, So do check out our website. Um, And I do have some stickers as well. I'll be making sure that that they're out there for you guys to stick on your boxes and cars and whatnot.
1: Narrator's panelling for us today. I think she's saying what are on the t shirts. Yes, she is. Excellent. You're allowed to speak narrator no she doesn't want it okay <laughs> fair enough um yes so can you describe the t-shirt
2: yeah so um the t-shirt just features one of i guess the more iconic nudie branks that's Verko's nudie brank he's a bright yellow one with blue spots and you've probably seen photos of him Or well, you might have been lucky enough to see him out there as well i have in fact i've made a cupcake <laughs>
1: in awesome. honor of a nudie out, brank. out of
0: the nudie brank
1: no <laughs> <laughs> i told you they were nice <laughs> Um, okay, so details, Nicole, for people who want to take part, where can they go for more information? How do they get in touch with you?
2: Um, yeah, so I guess first um, first protocol is the website, the NPA website. Um, if you look up just Sea Slug Census Victoria, you'll find us. Um, and that's got all the information about what to do when you found a sea slug, where to send the photos um, and yeah, general details of when We'll get back to you about it, as well as the report from...
1: Um, April as well. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much for coming in. Very it's been an absolute me. pleasure. Yeah, I got but- one
0: of those t-shirts too. The, the, the stickers are really cool I'll too. I'll buy them, I'm not asking
1: <laughs> We'll put all of that on our website. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Now there's a man who knows his fins. Okay, very quickly we're going to have a rundown. I'll call this Fins 101 and Five years ago, if you talked to me about whether fins were important on a board, I would go, but I have found personally that I have they make a huge difference. So I thought I'd bring in an expert on fins, my friend Greg. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. And what we're going to do is just very quickly go through what a fin is and what it does, and then we're going to share our experiences on how important they are to a board because they can really make or break a board. Fins are those things on the bottom of a board that are shaped mostly like a dolphin dorsal fin. And they are there so you can turn. That's basically what it is. There are two types of fins, stiff fins and flexible fins. Stiff fins are ones you would put in if you like to do pivotal turns. And what we're talking about from here on is what I call high-end surfing. So if you're just learning, don't worry about what I'm about to say. But if you've been surfing for a while and you want to make a change, or you're interested in doing a particular manoeuvre, then fins become critical. Stiff fins are often made from things like epoxy, carbon-based materials, and as the name implies, they don't bend, they don't flex. But flexible fins, which is a whole new world, are made of a variety of composite materials uh, including fiberglass, and they flex. In other words, they bend when you turn, and they, it's a way, if you know your physics, of storing energy. So the tip flexes and the energy stored in the base, and then as you come out of your turn, it flexes back again. Flexible fins are for speed, driving turns, where you actually accelerate through the, the turn. And... Um, there's a, v- a variety of things of flexible fins you can get. But what I thought it would be interesting to do was to talk to a champion kneeboarder, Greg. And the reason why I thought a kneeboarder would be interesting was because flexible fins came from an iconic kneeboarder. Mr Greeno. Mr Greeno. George Greeno is his name. And how, how have you found, oh, we were talking
4: on the way up, you regularly change your fins? All, all the time it's uh, critical to how a board works. You can have a board that doesn't work, change fins with millimetre um, differences and it's a totally different being. This is a practice that's quite rare amongst surfers. I think a lot of
0: them think, well, there's not much I can do to change the way this board performs. Would you agree with
4: that? Or? Uh, if you don't change your fins, you don't know anything about your board, you need to change your fins so that you can experience small waves, big waves very differently and the same board can... Can be um, multi dimensional.
0: On the world circuit, you often see that the surface changing their fins to suit a particular tide or wave type. I don't think we need to go that far, but they do make a huge difference. Some of the people I talk to, are, uh, including the Trigger Brothers, Mick Pierce, Mars, who we've had on the show before, would say that it makes up to 50% difference to the, p- to the performance
4: of your board. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely can sit higher on a wave, lower on a wave, you can turn sharper, uh, more arcing and it's just so important. Now George Greeno is um,
0: famous for inventing I guess the flex fin which is a a raking fin that goes a long way back from the base and the tip flexes. Do you
4: still use those in in kneeboards? I've got a single fin with one of them in Dr Surf and it's really different to surf, it's really... Um, it, it lacks drive in some places where you can drop down from the top of the wave to the bottom of the wave really quickly then the fin engages and then you get get your drive with your your drive out of the, the flex. Yeah I
0: think that's the the the, um, the basic difference and I surf boards with flexible um, middle fins and what I've been doing with Mick is is trying to work out a board that could do what we call the mythical 40-metre bottom turn, where you just arc it around, but you accelerate all the way through. And that's what flexible fins are about. Whereas if you're... Let's say, for example, you're in a competition and you want to do a lot of manoeuvres, that fin may not suit. You would go for a, a stiffer fin.
4: Is that right? Um, depends on the waves. It's, if, it's, if it's a, a carving wave or a, or a sucking tubing wave where, where take-off's critical... You've got to change your fins accordingly.
0: Mm. And that's how you would decide. has given us a question here. How do you know which fins to try or use? You would, how would
4: you go about It's just, just, just through education. You, you, you give a fin a chance. You ride a board for a month like that. You get used to it. Then you change the fins. Then you know from the variety of fins you use that mm. one fin can do something better than the other fin and you evolve and adapt
0: yeah, as an example, if you if you rock up at the beach like on Thursday morning and it's double overhead, you want a stiff fin, quite deep, that's going to hold in on a big wave. But if, on the other hand, if you go down and it's about two foot, you could go for a little flexy, plastic fin, not plastic uh, composite, so that you can do a, a lot more turns. So it's it's courses for courses, I guess. Is and
4: and size is important. As, as depth in the big of the waves, fin, yeah, depth, depth of the fin. So. Bigger waves, bigger fins, smaller waves, smaller fins. Now, another question. Can you shape your own fins? You do. Absolutely. There's a brand called FCS and they have a a six millimetre plug you, you stick your fin in and you can buy some chopping boards that are about $5 and you can make three to five fins out of it. And, and uh, So you get really cheap, as opposed to $100 fins. You can yeah, or you can go the other way, and, and I know
0: um, not many surf uh, shapers will make fins anymore. You can get them online. There's a there's a website in Hawaii called Hanalei; they make them. Why won't if, Why if won't you want to make, make their your own yourself, fins? They're very labour intensive. You've right. got to lay up 30 or more layers of six ounce glass, then you've got to get a jigsaw and cut out the shape and then you've got to foil it and that's a whole new show And How you foil a fin which is in other words the shape from top to bottom and from back to front, it changes
1: Right.
0: So we won't go into that today You're just
1: missing too many waves while you're doing that
0: Yeah, but you, or you can go to the shop and buy an FCS fin or whatever else fin but have a chat to the guy behind the desk and he'll advise you if you tell him what you want to do, we can advise you about what fin would suit you
1: mm. There
0: you go. Okay Thanks very much Greg for, 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 what, for fins 101, we'll have fins 201 in an upcoming show.
1: Excellent! I'm looking forward to the next instalment, and we'll get you on first next time, Greg. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we, we've got some fins we brought in. We thought we might scrape them against the microphone. Really?
1: So. <laughs> you can do that while we while it puts on our outro. <laughs> hey, thanks um, to our guest today, to Greg Budgeon, to uh, Nicole. Uh, Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association and to Anate Tong. Anate's ARC screening as part of the Environmental Film Festival Australia here in Melbourne in just over a week's time. I uh, promise with my hand in the air to put links to all these things on our Facebook page. Had some um, technical difficulties in the last few weeks, but uh, we'll uh, do that this afternoon and catch up on the last few weeks as well. Um, on next week's program, uh, unconfirmed at this stage, hoping to have a special on Indonesia with Madison Stewart talking about work she's been doing with shark conservation, AJ from dive to You, who's on his way back from Indonesia at the moment doing coral reef restoration work, um, and uh, Andrew Sargent, who is going to be talking about the impact Of of tourism on coastal development in Indonesia. Stay tuned for Radio Therapy. They will come through, take you till eleven o'clock. We'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Bye.
4: Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R
2: sponsors.